There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Just like every week, Greg, it's you and me. It is. Yep. Last week, we interviewed David Roselle and talked about some investment lessons learned by way of being an avid adventurer. That was kind of a fun discussion. It was. He's a very interesting guy. And he talked about the risk in retirement and how it's not necessarily climbing to the peak of the goal, as in retiring, but it's the descent where people tend to perhaps make mistakes. So some might say that the most important thing that somebody could do would be forecasting for potential risks out there. Right on. So on that note, we are pleased to have Warren Hatch join us today. Warren is the CEO of Good Judgment, Inc. Dr. Hatch joined Good Judgment as a volunteer forecaster in the research project sponsored by the U.S. government and became a super forecaster. And he's now the CEO of the commercial successor, Good Judgment, Inc. So his career has gone a long ways. We were reading that he started on Wall Street, where he worked at Morgan Stanley before co-founding a boutique investment firm. He earned his PhD from Oxford University, so he's probably pretty intelligent, I would guess. And he has a chartered financial analyst designation. He's a charter holder. So, But now, the pinnacle of any great career, Greg, is to be a guest on the Free Lunch Podcast. So, Absolutely. Warren, welcome to the pinnacle of your career and welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And it's great to be at the pinnacle here where you reside. <laughs> well, and speaking of where we reside, where are you joining us from today, Warren? I'm in New York today. Okay. Tell us your story. Colin gave a bit of your background with Morgan Stanley and so on, but how did you end up here where you are today? Well, it was kind of on a lark. So the author of this book, Super Forecasting, along with Dan Gardner, is Phil Tetlock. He's a very distinguished psychologist, and he had written an earlier book called Expert Political Judgment, and political science was my old academic background. And I really liked that book. The point that he made was a lot of experts will make forecasts, but when you go back and match their forecasts against reality, they're not so good. And he documented that with a lot of evidence and empirical data. But one thing that he also found was that on shorter horizons, some people actually can make good forecasts. So that's what he started planning next. And a decade ago now, the U.S. government had just come off of some pretty important forecasting failures with 9-11 that happened and they missed and weapons of mass destruction that they thought existed but did not. So they were getting type one and type two errors that were very consequential and did some serious soul searching for ways to improve their analyst capabilities to make forecasts on shorter term horizons, improve on the wisdom of the crowd was what they set out to do. So the government sponsored a competition among five university-based teams, one of which was Phil Tetlock and Bart Miller's team called Good Judgment. And it was right around then that I thought, well, I wonder what Phil's up to. I liked his book. I went to his webpage. And then at the bottom, he had an announcement looking for volunteers to join this new research project. He was starting. 
do you like to forecast geopolitical events? And I thought, well, who doesn't? Yep. So I signed <laughs> up having no idea how big the project was or how deeply involved I would end up becoming. And it went from there. Wow. So your background, then you were in the investment business with Morgan Stanley. And you know what it's like dealing with individual investors. And we all want to know what's going to happen. The basis of investing seems to be, where are things going? How are we going to predict what's going? Is there going to be inflation? Are interest rates going up? Things like that. So how important is it for investors to understand forecasting and how can super forecasting help make better investment decisions in your opinion? I wish I knew then what I know (laughs) now when it comes to forecasting, because there are so many things that I learned to do that I had to unlearn to do later on. And one of the big things is that forecasting and finance often is done very generically. So is there inflation? Oh, well, I think there is. And you might select a few anecdotes and be very focused on what's going on at the moment. But what we know from the data is that you want to go and find comparison classes. What kinds of similar environments might we find that will tell us something useful from the past or other countries that will tell us something useful about what we're trying to understand today? And that very basic step is something that can be very helpful for any investor, individual, professional, institutional. You start with a base rate because all too often people will say, this is special, this is different, my security is special benefits that no one else has. Don't bother me with the macros. Don't bother me with the industry group. But really, that's a conclusion to be made, not an assumption to start with. So something that fundamental, I think, is very powerful for all investors. Just for our listeners, you're talking about general forecasting. As Greg said, we're in this environment where people are looking for certainty in what is forever an uncertain world. They talk about, well, what's the market going to do next year? And we often talk about how things like the past can't repeat itself, but it certainly can rhyme. But what is the difference between forecasting and can you describe exactly what super forecasting is to the layman listener? For me, forecasting is simply thinking probabilistically about the future. So very few decisions we make are going to be an absolute yes or an absolute no. They're going to be within the range somewhere in between. It's a world of maybe. And what we want to do when we think probabilistically is be as precise as we can. And that's why we use numbers instead of words. So will there be inflation? Let's turn that into something more precise. Will inflation a year from now be more than 3%? So we got a date, we got a timeline, and now we can express it with a probability. Let's say it's 87% probability that that will be the case. That becomes meaningful. That's something precise. We can all understand what that means. We can keep the track record of whether I'm right or you're right or Greg is right, and then get more confidence in the forecast we're all making. So forecasting is just thinking probabilistically about the future. Really, every decision in that sense is a forecast. And what super forecasting is about is a data-driven, empirical process that we know leads to better forecasts, both for individuals and for teams. There are steps that anyone can take, some simple, some more complex, but all of them can have incremental improvements to the accuracy of our forecasts 
based on what you might otherwise get. And by accuracy, I should emphasize too, is you're getting the best possible forecast right now. And if you can get the best possible forecast right now, before the competition, you have time. And having that time advantage is why it's really worthwhile. So if you're an investor and you can beat the crowd to the best possible forecast, that's where profit is. And can you tell us a little bit about how the wisdom of crowds contributes to super forecasting? There are things you can do as an individual and starting the base rate, comparison class, really important. Writing down your thinking, going back and checking how reality mapped to what actually happened so you can get feedback and get better. Then it really gets turbocharged when you get a group of people who are doing the same thing so that they can pool limited information and so that they can identify information that may not be useful. Noise in the terms of Daniel Kahneman's new book, you want to filter out the noise and boost the signal and having well-constructed teams can help you do that. One great way to do that, been around for decades, by the way, is you ensure anonymity. This is something the RAND Corporation pioneered. They call the Delphi method. And you can do it on any team where rather than having a direct interaction, you get anchored on the high status individual who's in the room. And I saw this when I was at Morgan Stanley. That's one of the things I wish I could go back and say, no, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Back then, we'd sit around a big table And we've all been there, big table, there's high status individual sits down and says, so what do you think about yen? And immediately we're not thinking about what we think, we're thinking about what the high status individual thinks. And then there might be some discussion where we hear from the loudest voice in the room who may just mention the latest headlines that may or may not be relevant to yen or whatever. We've all been there. So instead what you do, you anonymize it. You invite everyone to offer their view So should we invest in yen? Why? Circulate it. Then we hear from everybody, and then we can benefit from everybody's individual perspectives and synthesize them, and then come up with a group view about whether it's a good idea to invest in yen, having heard from everybody, not just the high-status individual, not just the loudest voice in the room. And that's a quick process. Again, it's a keyword process that anyone can do to improve their team's efficiency and accuracy when it comes to forecasting. You talked about Kahneman and certainly behavioral economics is a big discussion point with us. And we've had numerous people on the podcast talking about that. How do you use super forecasting to sort of get over some of those subjective behavioral or cognitive biases that people have to come up with more objective forecasts, I guess? That is what we're trying to do is turn kind of subjective guesses, hunches into something objective and measurable. And while we do that, we want to, as much as possible, identify and mitigate some of these cognitive biases that we all have. And there are things, the academics still debate how much you can actually do something about it. But what we do know is awareness can be very helpful. So an example, a really easy, straightforward, most people are overconfident, but most people will think, I'm not overconfident, that guy is overconfident. It's not a problem I have. But there are very easy ways to establish that we all fall into the overconfidence trap. And the thing is, though, is that once you're aware of it, when it comes to overconfidence in particular, there are things you can do to improve. You can learn to calibrate yourself. So if you have an 80% confidence in something, you can get feedback on whether your 80% confidence actually aligns with what the world says. 
if you have enough feedback over enough time, you can learn that maybe that 80% confidence you have really is more like 50%. And having that piece of information can be really beneficial for anyone to know, well, I think I'm 80% confident, but it's really more than like 50. That slows you down. And doing that process of slowing down means you'll go back, check your work, make sure that your assumptions are actually well-founded. There are others too that we all fall into on cognitive biases. There are many, many of them. I know one of the examples we've used in the past is it's something like 80% of drivers believe they're above average drivers, which of course, statistically is impossible. So we like to tell people, look, on average, we're all kind of average, making an average number of good decisions and an average number of bad decisions. And I assume then if an average person had the powers that you put forward, the super forecasting powers, you're seeing that it would just give them a better chance. Is that correct? Yeah. And it really is getting the feedback. That's ultimately what is really beneficial to get people to recognize that where they are in the distribution. And you're right. Most people think they are above average on anything that they're doing and that everybody else is below average for everything they're doing. And the reality is somewhere in between for most things. And that actually goes back to the base rate again. So a comparison class, the right place to start is we're all average. That's where you should start and then convince yourself that you're below or above from there. But we should start from the assumption that we're right in the middle of the bell curve because that's the base rate. I'm sort of fascinated by this whole concept. And again, as I say, super forecasting is new to me. We've talked a little bit about investments and certainly from our chairs, we can really see massive opportunities for super forecasting in the investment world. But what are the types of questions does your company address? Obviously, you've mentioned some geopolitical. What are some of the things that you might be involved with forecasting? So we do two main things, really. So we know how to convert these hunches into quantified probability estimates that are the best available. So we do two things. One is we can show people how to do it. And so we'll do a lot of training and go through interactive exercises to do that. Some of the things we were just talking about. But the other thing we do is we have from this research project, a panel of super forecasters, the top 2% that we creamed off the top. And I'm one of them. That's how I got involved too. And they provide the best forecasts available. And we have them working on client questions. So the kinds of questions that we're forecasting are the ones being posed by our clients. Many of them are in finance. So anything that you might think about that'll affect your investment outlook, odds are good that we're doing something on that. So what is the inflation outlook? And we're also doing work on tariffs on China. What's the probability they will be lifted? What's the probability also about the US election outcome next year or the French election? or the midterms next year in the French election that's coming up as well. So anything, we really try and find something that's otherwise dominated by subjective guesswork and not otherwise available in hard data. So like oil prices, you can go to a Bloomberg screen and get a pretty good estimate from the futures markets about where they're going to be a year from now. But who's going to win the midterms? That's a little bit different. Or what will the future of Northern Ireland be within the United Kingdom. That's a little bit different. So we'll tackle those sorts of things where there's a lot of information, a lot of opinion, but it's very consequential to decisions to understand what the probability truly is. And that's where we try and focus. 
our energies. And by the way, every year we do bring in new blood of super forecasters and our main training ground is Good Judgment Open, where we have similar kinds of questions where people will go and anyone signs up and they start forecasting and they build up their own track record. And then once a year, we'll invite the best to come and join the professionals. Raises an interesting question in our line of business. Of course, one of the things that we try to avoid actually are people buying investment products based on historical returns. So you can't buy last year's performance. and But of course, that's an ongoing issue because in a lot of cases, strong performance in one period, whether it's three or five year period, may not be followed by strong performance subsequently. So with super forecasting, you track that. Obviously, you said you track forecasts against actual results and you see who rises to the top of that group of super forecasters. Is that success rate, is that continue through time, do you find? So it's a skill like any other, really. So you learn to play the violin or ride a bike or forecast and being comfortable with probability estimates about the future. These are all skills that most of us are not born with innately, but most of us can acquire and learn. And like any skill, once you've learned it, it takes a lot of work to get there, but once you've learned it, it kind of becomes part of who you are. If you learn to play the violin, you're a violinist forevermore. Now, if you don't play the violin for a while, you might get a little rusty, and it's the same with forecasting, but you pick up the violin again or start thinking about probabilities again, you'll find it's still there. One of my favorite commercials, I reference it all the time with my kids, is this insurance company, and I think like an elephant steps on a car or something like that, and the one guy says to the other, well, what's the chance of that happening? The other guy says, well, 100% because it happened. I always like to use that with my kids. When something has happened, somebody say, well, what was the chance of that happening? Well, 100% because it happened. But what you're saying is to replicate that forecast going forward takes an inordinate amount of skill or how much luck plays into that. And that's part of the feedback you get because there's a lot of randomness in the world and just where that dividing line is between probabilities that you can measure and randomness that you really can't. That's kind of the art of it all. We know the science, the process steps you can take, and the art is to kind of find that dividing line that you were just finding. But just imagine in that situation, roll the tape back five minutes, and then ask the guy, is the elephant going to stop on the car? And now ask that across 100 situations where an elephant is about to stomp on the car. How often is the elephant really going to stomp on the car? I would submit it's not 100 times out in the real world, it's probably something less than that. And knowing kind of what that looks like, what is the probability of those sorts of events occurring is where it really comes into play. It's easy to be accurate in hindsight. It's tough to be accurate with foresight. Oh, hindsight bias is the best bias, isn't it? (laughs) It is a good one. It is fascinating too, how quickly things can turn into, oh, I knew it all the way along. You can see it in real time whenever... We run into a lot of uncertainty, and then suddenly we now know how things have resolved, and all the experts are out there saying, well, of course, it was inevitable. It sounds like you'd be a good person to know when we're down in Las Vegas, maybe betting on the sports book or something could certainly improve your odds. (laughs) Well, here's the thing is that we know, because we've seen them, the good poker players make very good forecasters of the kinds of topics we're talking about now. They're very comfortable in probabilities. And they can get very granular. So they recognize something significant by going from 
a 60-40 shot to a 63-37% shot. That small spread, they get, understand, and they've learned it. So they already have that part of the skill. They become very good forecasters. Now, going the other way, not so much. I can tell you right now, if you see me in Las Vegas, you'll be able to fleece me in nobody's time. (laughs) I'm not very good. One question for you, and maybe some advice from you, is one of the issues we have, of course, all the time is we at times use probabilities in terms of our investment choices. Do we select value stocks over growth stocks? Certainly based on history, there would be an expectation, for example, that value stocks could outperform. But it's a probability. And getting ourselves, including our clients or investors, to understand that, well, if something's there's an 87% likelihood of something happening, there's still a 13% likelihood that it won't happen. And then when it doesn't happen, it doesn't mean the forecast was wrong. It just means that there was a low probability event that happened. So how do you educate people on understanding probabilities and making decisions still based on probabilities, even though it sometimes doesn't work out? That's a great and subtle point that often can be difficult to convey. And you're right. So in a world of probabilities, unless you say zero or a hundred, the way you're wrong is if you have poor calibration that we were talking about earlier. So if you're saying 87% probability of something of occurring, in this case, values relative performance, then across a hundred questions, 87 times that should occur and the other 13, it should not. Now you're well calibrated. I can have confidence in your 87% probability estimate. The other key thing then too, if the world splits off into 100 different universes, 13 of them will go one way, 87 go the other. So the way to deal with that, certainly, surely, is to not make huge bets. Don't bet the ranch on one call. You have a portfolio approach. Because if you have a portfolio approach where 87% of the time you'll be right and 13% you'll be wrong, you're going to be pretty happy. And that's something investors become very comfortable with. So if you think about in terms of a portfolio, where not every stock you're going to pick or every ETF or mutual is going to be a winner. What you want to do is over the long run, have enough winners to offset the losers. And that's probabilities. It sounds a lot like, so the Fama French three-factor model, which is a big thing in finance, it talks about expected returns. So the equity premium, the value premium that you talked about, Greg, the size premium. And I know the the evidence that it shows is that over the last, I don't know, 80 years, the equity premium added something like 8% in expected rate of return. But then Fama is also the first one to say, but that's expected rate of return and that's not really what happened or will happen. What happens is whatever happens. So I don't know where I'm going with this, <laughs> but we deal with it all the time because we've got investors that are invested in these portfolios with a tilt towards equity, small company value stocks, and they're expecting a premium, but they don't always get it. And in fact, over the last three to five years, they did not get it. I mean, it just didn't work out that way. So interesting times. Yeah. Here's how you take a super forecasting approach to that sort of situation is you would recognize that over the long period of history, that might be the base rate, right? That's what history shows. But then you would, like you just did, also recognize that within that period of time, there's smaller breaks of time where things go differently. So it's not a consistent data set where it's just the same thing all the time. You cannot just extrapolate the past. 
in the future. But you can see periods where things went one way versus another. And that can then spark, of course, what sorts of environments were we in in those different periods and identify what the risks might be that we're in one environment where value underperforms versus another where it will outperform. And that will give you other forecast questions to be considering. The history will teach us to focus on whatever those might be. What are central banks doing? What are the economy doing? These very basic things. And you get smaller and smaller to more consequential forecast questions you might want to ask yourself. But then you'll do another thing. So that's just looking at the past. Let's look to the future. If we look back a year from now and see the value has underperformed, let's ask ourselves, why might that be? What happened between now and then that led value to underperform? This is a process called premortemy. You imagine the future and then look back. And you'll say, oh, well, there might be this or there might be that. And those can become forecast questions. And I've got a great example for you is that in September 2019, we were doing a workshop at a financial firm in Canada, and we were going through this exercise. Their forecast question that they were working with was, what will China's growth look like next year? That's consequential to their portfolio allocations. And they came up with a number and a probability for that number. And then they did this pre-mortem exercise. And so if they look back and growth disappoints, why might that be? And they had a discussion, went back and forth and the anonymous framework we're talking about. And somebody said, ah, well, now maybe there could be something like SARS again. <laughs> and they go, ah, yeah, so we should mark down our forecast a little bit because that could happen. Now they didn't get it. They didn't say 100% chance that that would occur, but they did zero in on some risks that would matter if they looked back. And so come December, when the headline started to shift ever so subtly, who was better prepared to act on that information? Those guys were. Well, fascinating. And maybe one specific question, will Trump be reelected in 2024? <laughs> Wait, are we going political now? <laughs> no, I'm just wondering. I'm sure there will be some discussion around your boardroom tables or actual committed assignments with regards to that question. And you don't need to answer it, of course, but I'm sure that will figure prominently in the next couple of years for you guys. Yeah, and that's a consequential one. And what we would do with that question is take a base rate. So, well, first, how often do presidents win re-election? And there's not a lot of data. There's not a lot, but there's a little bit. So that kind of gets us into a starting point. Maybe two times out of three, they would get re-elected. But let's also look at other political systems around the world. How often do prime ministers stay in office after an election? And that starts to give us other base rates to get us kind of in a zone where we want to be. And then we'll kind of narrow into other possible base rates. So is a, a re-elected president the right base rate? Maybe not. Maybe it's a president who was out of office, had one term, missed a term, and then came back. How often do they win? And off the top of my head, I remember there's some guy in the 19th century that won, but I also know that Theodore Roosevelt tried the same thing and he lost. So maybe to be 50-50. But then we might even narrower and say, there's some people who don't think that he lost and he is president. So in which case, he's not eligible to run for a third term. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a good way of not answering the question there, Warren. 
<laughs> my own view for what it's worth is if he ran and became the nominee, the odds would be one in 10 that he would go through. I think it's just they're stacked against him if he actually got that far. Well, interesting. We'll come back and revisit this in a few years and see how we made out on that one. <laughs> Greg, we should move on to our speed round. We should. Yep. These are just quick questions and no pressure. Because Warren, you already did all the hard work. This is just for fun. So there's no right or wrong answers to this one, unlike the last question you just answered. This may be more fun at your expense. I'm not sure, but we'll start with the softball here. What do you do for fun when you're not working? Read and watch movies and have naps and do crosswords. Fantastic. And go for walks. You had me at naps. <laughs> so what are you reading right now? Right now, I'm reading a book about the heart called Pump, wow. which is pretty good. And I've got another one over there by Stuart Ritchie called Science Fictions. Awesome. And here's one. So Colin and I both grew up in small Midwestern towns. I always wanted to say that. I grew up in a small Midwestern town, Regina, and Colin grew up in Saskatoon, both in the province of Saskatchewan. Your question, how do you spell Saskatchewan? <laughs> no pressure. I used to have a pen pal in Saskatoon. Oh, there we go. Okay. It's a ringer here. So- <laughs> S-A-S-K-E. Ah, you so close. I can't even spell my own name. I have to tell you, it's a bit of an unfair question. We ask it of every U.S. guest we have, and I think it's like one for 10. But literally, there's places. How do you spell Missouri? I don't know. M-I-S-S-O-U-R-I. I. Oh, God. You had a team. You got there. Nicely done. Better than me. I should know better. Give me Alberta or New Brunswick. Okay. How do you spell Alberta? (laughs) (laughs) All right. No, listen, just a couple more here just for fun. Do you ever wear a toque when you're out and about in New York City? I do. Oh, you know what it is? What is it? Yeah, that's right. It's the hat. Yeah, it's a wool hat with maybe a pom-pom on the end of it. Very good. Very good. Greg, you got one last one? When you were in university, did you ever eat KD? No. You may call it macaroni and cheese dinner in the United States. Craft dinner in Canada. KD, we all grew up on it, lived on it for four or more years. and That might not be a fair one because I don't know if they have craft dinner in, at Oxford, do they? Good point. They actually started importing it when I was there. You get it on the shelves. But otherwise, you get like pasta shells and put butter in it and that kind yeah. of thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, Warren, thanks again for joining us today. That was a lot of fun and a very interesting discussion on super forecasting. And we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you. I think we've all learned a lot from today. So appreciate it very much. Thank you. And see you over on Good Judgment Open. We'll forecast inflation. That sounds great. That sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll be there. Okay. All right. Thank you. And listen, so thanks to everybody for joining us today. And next time we are going to have fellow named Jonathan Ng join us. Jonathan is a will and estate lawyer, and he's going to talk about, I don't know, dying and what to do about it. Awesome. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast.
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.